wow, dude, this like 26 years of suffering you could have uh, alleviated there. If only you were a Russian lawyer in the 1870s. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast created by the Jacksway Collective. We're a group of friends who like to talk about philosophy, fiction, and whatever else is on our minds. Thank you very much for listening. Now let's get to the show. Welcome back to episode 13 of the Jacksway Collective podcast. This is Oliver. I'm here in Toronto, and I'm joined by Yana, Sarah, and Brendan, and they're over in Vancouver. Today we're reading God Sees the Truth But Waits, a short story by Leo Tolstoy. We also have a pretty exciting email to talk about today, our first email. So we got an email from a TED in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. The very first email of the podcast. Very first fan email. Great fucking email, too. Well well done, Ted. And he says, Hey, the show is fun. Keep making it so I can keep listening to it. I have a question. In both the Kevin and Usher episodes, there was a general impulse to talk about whether or not the characters in the stories shouldered the blame for what was going on. I want to hear more about that. Namely, the chemistry of Kevin and Usher's brains seemed to exempt them from blame. Isn't the chemistry of our brains who we are? If we can't be blamed for the things that make us us, is blame even a helpful thing to talk about? And if it's not helpful to talk about, why is there such an impulse to talk about it? Maybe you can find another bit of fiction where you get to talk about blame and I get to listen. Keep having fun. Again, that was from Ted in Vancouver. Thank you so much for your email, Ted. Mm, Ted, you are the man. You are the the very first inaugural the the very first inaugural is a bit redundant, okay. but yeah, yeah inaugural. The inaugural <laughs> Jacksway Collective fan email. Let's go with that. And like a damn good email as well. It's going to actually be our intro discussion uh, for the episode today. So just to kick it off, I just pose a question to the three of you guys. In your own opinions, what are the criteria for someone else um, and for you, I guess, to attribute blame or responsibility to someone what needs to happen? What uh, states need to be in place? What metrics do you use when assessing blame and responsibility? And when do you choose to attribute it to someone else? Well, going going off of Ted's email and his reference to Kevin, I felt like with the Kevin episode, we definitely attributed a lot of the blame to his psychopathy without blaming him as a psychopath. And the chemistry of our brains is such an interesting point of discussion because it's something that's endowed on us. It's not something that we ask for or have any uh, way of producing or altering. Um, So in order to blame an individual, how much of the blame gets put on them, I feel, has to be a product of the level of choice that goes into their actions and who they are. But then if choice is going to be dictated by the chemistry, we're also just going to be in this constant cycle of what do we uh, put the blame on? I feel like, though, in the instance of psychopathy, like it's so rare that someone is a true psychopath. So exempting them from that blame, I mean, you're not giving that pass to a ton of people, you know, Um, like think of people who plead insanity in courts of law like they're exempt from blame and that's like after careful consideration uh research by doctors and study so yeah the chemistry of the brain is what makes us who we are but i think in those rare instances you can blame the chemistry and not the individual what do you think oliver hmm i would say probably the outcome of whatever um 
happen due to the uh, their actions. So let's go to the case of Kevin, though. Um, the outcome of his actions was quite bad, yet it seemed like we were all pretty much in most, mostly we were all in agreement um, in terms of not attributing any blame to him. Um, yet the consequences were dire in that case. I think in order to con- keep our like idea of morality consistent, we just have to attribute blame to him. That way, if someone else who wasn't a psychopath did the same thing, then it would still make sense to us, right? Okay, that's interesting because... I don't um, even, for me personally, it's not even about attributing blame to Kevin or not, but is it productive to attribute blame to him? Not really. So then what's the point? So what if you reframe it in just no blame, no active action taken? Um, What about just is he responsible? Yeah, of course he is. I think the beauty of having something more objective like the court of law to impose penalties on such... uh, that imposes penalties based off of the outcome and based off the action as opposed to um, whether the person is deserving of blame. I think that's something important to have in in society. But from a moral standpoint, that's where it becomes a lot more ambiguous. And I would say that is when uh, the blame shouldn't be falling on the individual but on the situation. Yeah, because, like, we don't even really have any indication as to whether Kevin had, like, some defining moment that uh, made him the individual that he was, right? Kevin's interesting, too, because not only is he perhaps a psychopath, but he is also a minor. So in any instance of a minor doing something, like, blame tends to be put on the shoulders of the parents. So him having... Both of those, like the psychopathy and being a child still, makes it even more like blurry, I think, to place blame on him. Interesting. And I guess like to kind of, when I asked you about if he's responsible though, you're like, yes, of course he is. Um, and I have the opposite intuition, like, I don't think he is responsible at all. Um, and then in response to Brennan, it seems like we use blame in such a more pragmatic sense because blame usually... What follows from that is some sort of action against the individual who is blamed. Whereas you're right, when we talk about responsibility, it's much more esoteric and you can hold someone responsible without actually taking any active action or having any punitive like punishments on them or anything like that, where it seems like blame carries a little bit more of an additional weight when you blame someone. Do you agree with that? I think when I said like he was responsible for it, I was meaning it in like a very literal sense. Like he was responsible as in he was the one behind like the bow Mm. shooting. But in terms of like culpability, again, blurry. Mm -hmm. That's a tough one because like Ted makes a good point here. Brain states are part of who we are. And why is a brain state somehow able to emancipate someone from doing such a terrible deed? And we point to the fact that Oh, well, his brain state is outside of his control. So, of course, we can't attribute any blame to him. But we can look at all of the other factors that are outside of his control, his upbringing, the circumstances he was in, um, his personality, his temperament, even as far as, like, the decisions that he made at that specific given moment in time. Almost, well, I would say, every single one of those things are outside of his control. What makes a brain state any different? So then when you accept that, you get yourself into this weird position where, okay, like, Nothing is in Kevin's control at all, um, so we don't hold him responsible. But then why do we hold the person who's just a standard criminal responsible, um, who's not a psychopath? 
when just as much and just as little is within or without um, or in or out of his control. And so, like, how do you get over this kind of contradiction? And I think that Sarah hit on it, in, at least in terms of how I think about it. Sarah hit on the distinction very early on when she talked about the kind of level of deviation from the base rate in Kevin's case. No one on the planet has control over their brain state. No one on the planet has control over their personality, their upbringing, whatever. But the majority of us do exist within the kind of mean of society of a functioning brain, of a functioning personality, decent upbringing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but because Kevin himself is so much of an outlier, even though nothing additional is in his control and nothing less is out of his control, he does lose some of that responsibility in my eyes because he has deviated so far from the mean, because his brain is such an abnormality. Um, that is enough for me to exempt him from responsibility and from blame. Where it is not enough for someone with all of the more well-functioning things in his brain and his upbringing, even if that too is out of his control, I'm still going to hold him responsible. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Let's get to back to some of Ted's other questions. Is blame even a helpful thing to talk about? It feels good. <laughs> <laughs> blame is also like a really broad term in terms of its connotations. In order of like in in identifying the being who is like the causal force behind something happening, then yeah, I think blame is something that's worthwhile to talk about. But um, I think blame has its limitations and how far we can take it. And I go back to like really like the utility of blame seems to be very important as well. Like the role that it serves in society and like the outcomes that it brings about. Like blame can be useful in society and it cannot be useful depending on how you use it. Whereas I guess when I think about just responsibility, it's much more like philosophical and has no real ramifications on the world. At least if you think about it in a kind of deep sense, like, yeah, no one is ultimately responsible for what they, what they do. But I think when you bring blame into it, you actually have a much more grounded, concrete, pragmatic approach, um, at least at the start. So when we talk about is it even useful to use blame, um, maybe it's not useful to use the word blame when you're talking about deep philosophical level of responsibility. But yeah, it could be useful in a societal sense and from a more pragmatic perspective. Blame can be a tool in the organization and management of society and the maintenance of laws and the organization of large-scale amounts of people. Blame can be a tool used in a social group, small or large, in order to uh, maintain harmony in that group. Even the word blame, though, has like such negative connotations for me. It like differs a lot than responsibility or being at fault. Like when you blame someone, like I don't know, it just seems so much ne more negative mm -hmm. to me than it seems to fall like right on their shoulders. Yeah. Whereas if you are responsible for something, like you might be still at the center, but there might be other factors that also like kind of fell on them as well. But blame mm -hmm. seems to be so directed at the individual and the wrongdoing that they seem to be responsible for. Yeah, and you like would blame someone for something versus like being at fault or being responsible or culpable. Those are just like external objective things that are happening where blame is much more subjective. Right. Okay, and so how about this? Like say someone does something wrong to you and you think that you are perfectly justified in blaming them. And then you do some more research or reading or discussion or whatever it is. 
and you come to the conclusion like, yeah, actually like so many of these things that I'm blaming this individual for are outside of their control, whether it's a brain state, whether it's uh, their upbringing or their, they happen to wake up that day and like this particular thing happened to trigger them. Like all of these factors that are kind of outside of the control, does that reduce the amount that you blame them after you figure this out? Do you feel more sympathy for them or do you just dig your heels in with this initial feeling of resentment and blame? No, I think you're right. Like the more facts you have, the less blame you maybe attribute to someone. And so if you had unlimited facts about the situation and you found that every single one of those facts was outside of his control, does the blame go away entirely or is there still something left there? There's still something left there. I think some of that just gets transferred to something or someone else, regardless of whether that's like a good thing or not, is another debate. But... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's just, it's such a core human feeling, regardless of all the facts and the data and the measurement that you put behind it, like you have this just fundamental intuition that someone deserves blame, whether or not it was in his control or outside of his control. Well, yeah, like think of little kids. If something bad happens, they're very quick to place the blame on a sibling or something, regardless of whether they did it or not. Like, it's very true. Little brother knocked the glass off the table. It wasn't <laughs> me. I blame him. And then what about a uh, question for you, Oliver? Do you think of Kevin's case any differently than Usher's case in terms of the amount of blame that they deserve? One's a psychopath. One's just, I guess, mentally ill or Ooh. what happened to Usher again? <laughs> He, like, buried his sister or something? He buried his sister out of, like, partially mental illness, partially, like, ignorance and just negligence, I guess. Does he deserve mm -hmm. more blame? Or do they both deserve zero? I'm starting to just feel more and more confused about the whole blame. It's okay, me too. Now that, now that we're talking about it. So, okay, so what does it mean to you when you blame someone? Is it even a useful term in our vocabulary? Is it mapping onto anything accurate? I think... I liked what you said earlier about how it's a way to control groups in social settings and it's almost a way to prevent certain things from happening because they feel shameful about it. Shame is almost like a cousin of blame, I think. But between Usher and Kevin, I don't know. I'm starting to get it's starting to get muddy for me. Yeah, it's tough because like they're probably at different spots in the spectrum of the level of blame we would traditionally attribute to them. One just a little bit farther to the one side. And then just like keep creeping it back and then you just have a regular person who does something wrong. Then that becomes foggy as well. I feel like we need to revisit moral luck. Yeah, actually, um, recommendation to you, Ted. There's a great essay by Thomas Nagel. It's called Moral Luck. It's like 15 pages. It's super short. I highly, highly recommend it to you. Um, if this is a topic that you're interested in, please go for it because it really does hit on all of these questions that you're asking. I'm like tempted to write a blog post about it. You should. You could. I don't want to announce that in podcast, though. <laughs> may or may not see a blog It's post. on the mic now. Yeah. We'll leave it at that. Okay. Anything else we want to pick up on from this email or we want to move on? Well, I think it would be safe to segue into the story because I feel like we can still discuss blame there as well. Mm -hmm. I think so. It's a great, great idea. And so, yeah, thank you to Ted. What an awesome, amazing email. Um, to the rest of you listeners out there, we will stick by our word. We will read your email if you guys do send us one. Um, we're happy to hear from you guys and keep that coming. That's jacksway.collective at gmail.com. Also, quickly, I forgot to mention in the intro, please rate us on iTunes. Five-star review and a, a little nice comment because that helps us out.
right, um, we are back here um, with our main discussion on Tolstoy's God Sees the Truth, But Waits. Um, and so it was actually Oliver that brought us the story today. Um, so let's just first get a brief little summary of the story for any of you who didn't read it. If you haven't read it, you should probably pause the podcast and go read it. It's eight pages. It's extremely short. And yeah, it'll make the podcast a bit more exciting for you. Um, but Oliver, tell us a little bit about uh, this story and what happens to our main character, Ivan. All right. So Ivan is this merchant and he, the story begins when he's young and he decides to go to this fair for a business trip. But his wife is like, no, don't go. I had this dream that you would return home with gray hair. And he's like, he laughs it off and he goes anyways. He stays at this inn with his other merchant. And then when he leaves in the morning, he is approached by these police officers and they say, you murdered the other merchant and they search his bag. They find a bloody knife. He gets thrown into jail. He gets flogged, sent to Siberia. 26 years later, um, he meets this other guy. This other guy shows up at the prison named Makar. And we find out that Makar was the guy who killed the other merchant. And then... Ivan forgives him, but then he dies. <laughs> Is that pretty much the story? Ah, uh, a nice light Russian read. <laughs> like, we've talked about this before, but I just love a story full of suffering. Um, and this one is just right up that alley, so that's amazing. Great choice. Okay, um, so I think um, the best spot for us to launch off our discussion of this podcast is to, again, lean on our um, English major of the podcast, Sarah. Um, the she's going to. <laughs> the one with, oh, like, the actual please. facts of, you know, the things that we read. Yeah, I don't know. Sarah, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about um, this story, how it relates to uh, maybe Tolstoy's body of work, and ground it in a historical context for us. My pleasure. Well, Tolstoy actually wrote this during um, one of his periods of spiritual crisis. So he wasn't doing a ton of writing anymore. Um, he had still managed to find time to write War and Peace, NBD, but I guess he was a little tuckered out after that. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. Um, so he wanted to quit writing, at least in a literary sense, and wanted to do something more practical. So he was teaching at an estate school for peasants, when he wrote this, and this story was more intended to be a pedagogical tool as opposed to an actual literary work. Um, of course, though, the prose is so wonderful and so beautiful that it became that and is now well known for that. And it was so good, in fact, that uh, Stephen King later borrowed part of this story for a little thing called the Shawshank Redemption. People may have heard of it. Most of us have heard of it. Most of us have heard of it. <laughs> yeah, Except for Brendan. <laughs> I've heard of it. I just haven't seen it. Okay, um, fine, fair. So what do, you, what do you mean exactly when you say it was a pedagogical tool? Um, like it was a tool meant to instruct or teach others versus just be like a standalone literary work. So some sort of like prescriptive kind of thing to his students that he was teaching at the time? Mm -hmm. Interesting. And so... What do you think he had in mind? What do you think he wanted to teach his students with a story like this? I think it was, you know, a commentary on man's strength and his faith and resilience in the face of unfair things happening. I mean, this was Russia. It wasn't all sunshine and rainbows there. Yeah, I wonder if it was meant as a teaching tool, as a structural thing, like writing-wise. 
in terms of plot and characters and all that? Or like we were saying, the themes that he was writing about? This, I'm actually not 100% sure and would love to have Google open to confirm this. But I think it was also based loosely on like a biblical story. So just kind of like grounding that more in a Russian context for the peasants that he was teaching as some kind of like moral parable. It's very interesting. And like one of the things that at least I have noticed in my, you know, very light reading of Russian novels is (laughs) um, the degree to which it seems when I'm reading and just, you know, from knowing any bit of history, like Russians struggle so fucking much and like have struggled historically more than so many other peoples. But the degree to which they hold on to their faith, despite all of that, is like unprecedented. I've never encountered that in any sort of piece of more Western literature. And so is it precisely this struggle that they under that they endure that leads to their um, tight hold on their own faith? Or is it something else? What do you think of that? Or is it because of the faith that they just allow this suffering to happen? <laughs> yeah, that's a much more cynical take, but I wouldn't put it past them. I not put it past them. Yeah, that, like that's a really tough one, but it's definitely a theme that I notice um, when reading, um, again, like just Dostoevsky and Tolstoy here, like they are, all of their characters are, their faith is such a key part of their their character and their their inner life, uh, much more so than any um, Western characters that we that we read. And like, obviously, God Sees the Truth is in the title. And this is one of the things that I... But waits. <laughs> but waits. And so... <laughs> That's an important part of the title, because there's a lot of waiting going on there. It is. And so... Least 26 me... years! And like, should... Like, is the title drawing attention to the fact that, like, listen, God sees the truth, and eventually the truth will come out, and you will be liberated, and, like, just be strong in your faith in the meantime, and God will eventually come around to you? Or is this title much more cynical in the sense of, like, God sees the truth, but he's going to hold on to it for years and years and years as you fucking struggle? He's just going to... He'll bring out the truth eventually, but it's not going to help you in any way. Like, how do we interpret this title and the work as a whole? I don't know. The fact that he was then redeemed and got released, but then died before he could actually leave the prison, that was just a gut punch. But that was, it was almost a a happy ending, I interpreted it as, because he wanted to die. (laughs) (laughs) He said it. (laughs) Wow. And he dies in peace, too. He does die in peace. Yeah, you're right. He's forgiven the other guy. He's been vindicated. He didn't rat the other guy out, even though he would have been well within his right to do so. His wife was already dead. His kids had grown up, never really knew him. So, yeah, I guess, Ollie, you're right. That is a happy ending. <laughs> yeah, in, like, the strangest, like, most perverse way, it is a very happy. He does get his uh, self-actualization at the end. Um, but in the in the midst of those 20, 26 or so years, just absolutely, absolutely fucking crippling life. And so, at least in my opinion, God does not come out looking great in this one. Yeah, no, he's pretty lax. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting on his laurels for a little bit too long, I think, God, come on. <laughs> but maybe this comes back to, like, our historical analysis of Tolstoy, because maybe that gives us an indication as to what he was intending with this story and title. Or is that, or should we not even be doing that when we're reading these texts? No, I, I definitely think that we should. And I'm truly unsure what he would have intended with this. If he's going for a more cynical take or if he is using this as, like Sarah said, a more instructional tool to encourage people to hold on to it um, till Mm -hmm. the end. Because one of the things that maybe I would think about this story, 
the the main character Ivan does indeed hold on to his faith throughout the end of the story and what emancipates him at the end and what gives him his fulfillment is not the truth coming out but it is in fact his willingness to hold on to his relationship with God till the very end and his like becoming more of a priestly and saintly person as his life went on at that point whether the truth comes out or not is kind of irrelevant he gets his salvation at the end specifically because he has held on to his faith despite that fact we agree with that I agree mm. completely to me that this whole story was at least I interpret it as being a testament to maintaining faith and maintaining belief because uh, the redemption that he he feels at the end when he finally gets to know the truth to me like that is the value that Tolstoy is trying to instill in individuals it's be strong remain uh, dedicated to the truth because the truth is always going to win out. And I, and I think we can all agree that that's not really the case, especially in this day and age. But I think uh, in a period of struggle, it's important to try to believe in that. And there's a will to believe in that because it, it gives you the resolve to continue trucking forward despite the difficulties that can encounter one's path. I thought it was interesting, though, that for like how much emphasis on truth there was when they ask Ivan about the tunnel in the prison they say oh Ivan like you're a truthful man like you'll set us straight like what happened here and he he doesn't answer truthfully I mean you could argue that like it was for different moral reasons but that was an interesting like I don't know compromise I guess how yeah, did you point. how did everybody interpret him not ratting out the guy who he believed framed him for murder? I mm. think you're supposed to see him as some kind of like noble like oh that was the noble thing to do. You know, you're not ratting this guy out just because he well really did you dirty like 26 years ago. And I think that there's this additional layer here that makes it in my opinion like quite a virtuous act is like, not only does he not rat this other person out because, like, he'll get flogged and he'll get fucked, but to be Ivan, the individual who has been fucked by the truth not coming out, for them, for him to then also, like, not in any way try and get his redemption on that or, like, be vindictive about the fact that in his case, the truth never came out to emancipate him, it's, there's an additional layer of difficulty to, to hold that in um, with a person like this. So, yeah, I thought it was, like, truly a... a, a momentous acts of virtue to hold it in or again was that just a plot device to get the other guy to confess yeah but it is almost like a like what kind of what you were saying yana like it's a saintly act almost but how virtuous is it if he's enabling a prisoner to potentially escape someone that he believes is a murderer and he's lying too yeah he's lying and he's potentially helping someone escape who could cause uh, damage or, um, you know, could cause harm to other individuals simply by being back in the world. Yeah, that's no bullshit. That was an outright lie. Oh, <laughs> call back. Hee <laughs> hee. You don't snitch, son. Come on. <laughs> He's been there 26 years. He knows the, the rules of the, the yard, as they say. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but then how virtuous is it? Well, maybe, maybe before a sentence and, like, during the early years of a sentence, he would have, like put the value of truth so high in his mind because he had like the fact that it does not come out is like ruined his life 
but through his time in prison, like the the importance of truth has like fallen in his own internal hierarchy. And what has risen in the meantime is like his priestliness, his saintliness. And so at least in his mind, whatever the truth is and the importance of truth has probably been reduced over those 26 years. So at least from his like personal perspective, he's like, it makes sense to me that he would go for the more what he sees as saintly and doing a favor to someone else, whether or not like outside view as a reader, whether that's the right thing to do. I think you have a great point, Brendan. But to me, I just think the value of truth for our main character, Ivan, has just reduced over these 26 years. Where do you want to go from here? We can talk about his bad boy past. Right. And like, how about, it's interesting we talk about blame as well in the intro section. One of the interesting things that I noticed about Ivan is the way that he seems to, and maybe uh, this is just my interpretation, but he seems to kind of internalize his own responsibility and blame as time goes on. Like, at first, he's like, I didn't do this. Um, But as time goes on, he kind of talks his way into and rationalizes that he somehow deserves this thing that has come to him. And, yeah, I just just thought that was interesting. Um, What do you guys think about that? Like, he very much internalized this. Yeah, it's almost as if he uses that as a scapegoat. Like, okay, I maybe didn't commit this murder, but... I used to be a real booze hound and I was on the piss the night that it happened. So who knows? I don't know. Maybe I'm being punished for past sins. So I'm just going to accept this and swallow it. Yeah, that's a tough one. I think there's a, like the just world hypothesis. And it basically describes that, you know, for the most part, people walk around with this feeling and this idea that people generally get what's coming to them. What goes around comes around. Um, People get what they deserve. Um, and it's often called like the just world fallacy because this might be what we think, but it's definitely not always the case. And so you see that kind of principle applied here where he's being punished and at first glance it's like, yeah, I didn't do anything wrong. But then he starts to think about it. And if his belief in this kind of just world, um, hypothesis makes him think of ways to rationalize the fact that he's been punished. And so he thinks worse of his like previous behavior and he talks himself into his own deserving of his punishment, um, which is such a strange thing to watch as a reader. Um, especially when after reading, you realize that he's innocent. Um, but then you watch him go on second read through, through this kind of devolving of his own, I don't know, convictions, I guess. To come back to a point that you made, um, at any point in time during the reading of this story, did you think he was guilty or did you think he was innocent through the entirety of it? I, uh, it's so hard for me to say after the fact, but like, I truly think that I felt he was innocent the whole time. I think that maybe the, the title kind of helped me along in that as well. Um, so that might have been a little bit of a giveaway, but... The I, only yeah. time I had a glimmer of doubt was when he showed doubt himself. And it was like, oh man, did he do this in like a fugue state or something? Mm, it's true, it's true. And you know what? Like when that happens, a page later, other guy shows up. Mm-hmm. Um, and interested to see about how you guys read this as well. Like for me, almost immediately, I'm like, that guy did it. Same. <laughs> Yeah, same. I love the finger point there. <laughs> that guy, all you podcast <laughs> listeners at home, I'm pointing at Plus, that um, guy. What was his name? Makar? Yeah, he he knew that... He Remember he asked Ivan, like, how could anyone put a knife into your bag while it was under your head? How would he have known the bag was under his head unless he put it there? Yeah, Makar, answer us that. Detec- Detective Chang, like, figuring out the case on, like, page 7 of, like, 10. Sa- saving Ivan from Siberia. Case wow, dude. This, like, 26 years of suffering you could have uh, alleviated there. If only you were a Russian lawyer in the 1870s. 
How do we feel about the 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 wife going into prison and being like, "Listen, honey, told you so." Like, like, just like, did you do it? Like, can you just like you know be honest? Like, how do we feel about that? Because that's a tough one. And I, on one level, if I'm Ivan, I of course have the same response as Ivan. But at the but on a more objective level, whatever the dynamic of any relationship is, and if it's the girl in prison, the guy in prison, whatever like stage of life they're in, that mere question is bound to come out no matter what. So you just got to be prepared for it. Mm-hmm. Do you think his response was appropriate? I think so. And she was like, what did well, he say her right again? to ask? Yeah, I, I, I think I agree with both of those things. What did he say again to her? I just remember him getting like really offended, being like, how dare you doubt me? Like, even you have lost your faith in me. You know, like totally normal response. You expect your wife to be there with you. Um, but also, like, I don't put any, like, of course, the wife would ask that too. Yeah, you have to for your own, like, peace of mind. I mean, if anyone's partner is in jail, you have to ask, how did you get here? What's going on? Yeah, it's a tough one. And how sad that, like, the family, like, ended up getting, like, really rich and, like, had this great life. And he's struggling (laughs) away in those Siberian, like, pits of despair. Oh, my God. But what's better or worse, that the family is, like, rich and thriving, or he goes to jail, and they become destitute, fall apart, and the baby dies? Yeah, very true, very true. It's like Oliver was saying, (laughs) everybody has a happy ending. The family gets rich, and Ivan dies when he wants to. It's really happy. You know it's a Russian story when death at the end is, like, best-case scenario. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't, like, read a Tolstoy story yet. Nor have we on this podcast where like the last sentence is like, and eh, he laid, laid over and died. <laughs> I don't. I don't even think we've read a happy story on this podcast. That's, that would be no fun. That'd be like, what, what, what are we what gonna was read, Doctor Seuss? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Green eggs and ham. Bonus episode. Christmas special. Oh, no. Ooh, the Grinch is still Christmas. My like final question in my notes was like, more in the nature of punishment itself. Of course, here we see how brutal it is to be sent to the Siberian, like I said, pits of despair. Um, Salt mine, wherever he was. Like, <laughs> whatever the official it title? is, getting flogged, like it's a nightmare, right? But I don't think that, like, although more brutal than what it would be to just send someone to prison nowadays, it, like the same kind of ramifications apply. Like I already talked about one of them, the way in which like Ivan, although innocent, internalizes his crimes and thinks that he is somehow in the wrong and he's done something wrong, like that weighs on you. Um, and then just all of the other ways that your internal character gets shifted and molded by 27 years um in a situation like this innocent or guilty that's like a really really cruel punishment and it's very harsh on an individual how do we feel about this like is this and again even take someone who actually murdered someone and goes through the exact same thing does the punishment fit the crime to have your internal identity be like so twisted and perverted by at the end of it and then to live with that on the rest of your life oh man (laughs) Asking a deep, deep cutting question there. <laughs> because it seems to me like you can have, like, what's worse, getting murdered or spending 27 years in a Siberian labor camp getting flogged and like living the no, rest of your no, life? No, they flog you first and then wait for those wounds to heal and mm. then they send you off to work. <laughs> then they put you to work. Yes. Every day for the rest of your life. Yes. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll try both and get back to you on that. <laughs> Deal. Okay. The flogging or the working? And or the, the dying. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's an empirical question and we'd all have to experience it. 
I mean, is a gut reaction. It definitely seems like it's a bit over the top, but I mean, like, we're also thinking of it from our perspective, where the、mm. baseline of life right now is pretty high. Back then, like that penalty was probably just like a little step <laughs> below being an actual peasant. So, like, <laughs> <it's> like <laughs> they're incentivized to commit crimes because they don't have like a stable job. Exactly. And- <laughs> the worst part about it is the flogging. That's it. And even then, I mean, or like, you could go to Tolstoy's estate school. Yeah, the flogging is just like some terrible two-week training session. Yeah, that's not so bad. <laughs> Can deal with that. One thing that I think the story is trying to communicate, or at least Tolstoy is trying to communicate through the narrative, is the fact that absolute truth should have its own value. It's not what absolute truth can deliver unto you that's important. It's the fact that it is the absolute truth in itself. And that's why I think that Ivan, at the end of the story, is portrayed as being happy and being at peace, is because the absolute truth was realized. It's not because the absolute truth served something for him. There was no self-serving purpose to it outside of the fact that it was finally observed. And I feel like that's something that Tolstoy really emphasized throughout the story: is that the truth is the value in itself. You don't need to observe truth or regard truth because it fulfills a purpose. The mere fact that it's out there and that it exists and that it's known is what's important. Amen. Truth is good for its own sake. Yeah, as we learned last episode, truth is a hot commodity. <laughs> so, what, do, what exactly do you mean by absolute truth? I guess using absolute is just like an emphasizer. The fact that it is so utterly true, like objective truth or whatever. Yeah, it's an objective truth. It's also interesting that. that Even at the very end of the story, Ivan still puts so much of his life and so much of what happens in the world into the hands of God. Like when they ask him about the tunnel that was being dug out,、uh, he even said, "As of telling you, I may do so or not, as God shall direct." Like he still puts his utmost faith in God. Any like just comments on the prose or any beautiful sentences anyone run across? It's hard to say because it was translated, right? Yeah. Hinges on the translation a lot too. I feel like ours was not great. Yeah, it's read so matter of factly.、Mm-hmm. Like there's one point where he's like,、uh, maybe I was reading a different translation than you guys, but the one that I read,、um, when he goes to pay the innkeeper, it's like he goes to pay the innkeeper. The innkeeper was in a cottage out back, and there's no reason for him to mention that whatsoever. But he does, and it's like, oh, okay, that's that's great. Thanks for the info.、Mm-hmm. No, there was a purpose for that because he was at the back, so he cannot have witnessed or heard the murder. Oh,、mm-hmm. you know, I mean, was Wait, it a great no. sentence? No, I, th- I thought the murder happened when they were sleeping. Yeah, but if the innkeeper is like away from the actual inn rooms, right? Oh, okay, then- yeah. Can I get a witness? <laughs> no, no, you can't. Dang! See, that's that's pedagogy right there. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! See, if you and Oliver were like a detective team back in the day, <laughs> this would have never happened. Would have been perfect. You show up to the prison, Ivan. You're coming home. <laughs> Six months in. I love it. I think we are good to wrap it up. Any final thoughts? Send in more emails. More emails. Emails are fun.、Um, write us on iTunes. Write us a review. Send us an email to be read on the air. Whatever else you do when you interact with the podcast, subscribe and like things. And、um, if we ever open up social media, like those as well. We're on Facebook. 
We are on Facebook. We're with, on Facebook like, now. Do we have a profile picture? I don't remember. Yes. We I do. I think it's just the podcast graphic. Okay. Well, you listeners are listening to the unveiling of our Facebook page then. We have a profile photo. You won't believe the kind of activity we have on Facebook. We don't really post things, <laughs> but we might we in the future. I forgot we, all that. Yes, also. All of us Everyone has got our toes in the Facebook. And so you listeners have an opportunity to be on the ground floor of the Jack's Way Collective uh, community. Like us on Facebook. Five stars. Send us a post. Um, okay. One final thing for the listeners. If you can help out Ted um, and you want to recommend another piece of fiction where blame is kind of a, a good issue in that, blame, responsibility, etc., please send that to us and uh, we will put that into the queue for the podcast. Next episode, episode 14, um, we will be watching um, Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin. So go ahead and watch that film and join us. Watch it twice. Watch it twice. (laughs) Three times if you're me. Um, Yeah, go ahead and see what you think of that film and join us on our next episode (laughs) in our our discussions of, of Under the Skin. 